0: Psalm 119. Possibly the most important lesson that children learn early on in school, in kindergarten really, is the ABCs. We learn our ABCs and we have to start there because without our ABCs we don't have the building blocks of language and reading and understanding and comprehension. Well, just as English is the language of America, we've talked about many times that faith is the language of heaven. Faith is the language that the Lord is teaching us day in and day out in our lives. Whatever we go through, whatever our experience, God's intention is that we learn to speak the language of faith. That we understand what it means to trust in Him and to follow after Him, and to believe Him for His word, and to take Him at His promises. Faith is the language of heaven. So what are the building blocks of faith? Well, they're as simple as ABC, or in the case of Psalm 119, they're as simple as Bet, Gemel. Because these headings throughout Psalm 119, you Bible students already know, are the Hebrew alphabet. Every eight verses you have a new letter. It goes straight through the whole Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters of the alphabet. Now in these 22 letters here's what's interesting in the way the psalm is put together. It's 176 verses. The longest chapter in the Bible and it's alphabetically organized into 22 octaves. An octave is is a series of eight or a system of eight. So there are eight verses and that's a single octave. And You have this 22 times, so 22 times eight, 176 verses, eight verse stanzas that lead us all the way through this psalm. But what's amazing is that not only are they organized by the alphabet, but each line, each line of the eight in each stanza, begin with the letter that heads it up. In fact, we added the letters. We added Aleph and Bet. And above verse 17, Gamel and Dalet, we added those in because the translators recognized that the first eight verses all began with the Hebrew Aleph. And the second eight verses all began with the Hebrew Bet. And the third stanza of eight verses began with Gamel, And the fourth stanza, all the way through, it tracks through the Hebrew alphabet. This is a masterpiece of, of prose and poetry, just the way it's put together. Before you even look at how it's written or what it says, it's amazing how it follows it through the entire alphabet. Why? Why does the psalmist do this? Because this longest chapter in the Bible is the single most important building block for learning the language of faith. The theme of Psalm 119 undergirds our understanding and teaches us how to speak with faith. And that theme is the Word of God. Without the Word of God, we have no comprehension of, of faith. We don't understand what faith is. We don't even know how to generate it because we don't, we don't know about God's faithfulness and His loving kindness and His long-suffering and His patience and all the things that make up the character of God. The Word of God illuminates all of this and is, I believe, the single most important building block of the language of faith. Now, some say Ezra is the author of Psalm 119 because we know Ezra loved the Word of God. Others come along and they say, no, it had to be Moses. Moses loved the Word of God. I mean, Moses is the one who brought the Word to the people there at Sinai. He's the one who offered it. The book of Deuteronomy, the, the name Deuteronomy, Devarim, the words. And so, it, perhaps it was Moses. There are others who believe, and I tend to go this direction, that David wrote Psalm 119. And it's because as you read through it, The style, the flow, the experience of the psalmist bears the marks of a man after God's own heart. I mean, this just sounds like David. It reads like David. We can't say absolutely for sure, but I'm just going to refer to David as we go through the psalm because I'm, I'm pretty sure it is him. A couple of centuries ago, Psalm 119 was actually referred to as David's pocketbook. And Charles Spurgeon has the idea that perhaps... The way this psalm was written was across an entire lifetime. What do you mean? That David had the scroll with him. And as he went through experiences, he jotted down a few more verses and began to organize it. Because at the beginning of the psalm, you have some of the, the I don't know, the excitement of youth. Some of the hopefulness. As you go further into the song, you get toward midnight. And things get a little tougher and you hear a man of affliction. And as you come toward the end of the psalm, it just grows and grows. The faith, we see a crescendo from beginning to end, similar to the life of David himself. It's interesting that Spurgeon himself was so passionate about this psalm, Psalm 119, that he writes 349 pages of his commentary on this psalm alone. Three volumes of Spurge's commentary on the treasury of David, he calls it the Psalms. 349 pages just on Psalm 119. And by the way, that single spaced font seven. Okay? So as you're reading through, it's like, wow. Most of the Psalms he, he dedicates 10, 12, maybe 15 pages to, and I've been doing pretty good just reading through you know what, what he has to say. I, I have a, a great admiration for Charles Spurgeon and especially the way he treats the Psalms. I got to this one, I'm like, there's no way. How am I supposed to read 350 pages by next Wednesday? But he was passionate about this. And it's Spurgeon who said the following. He said, Many superficial readers have imagined that Psalm 119 harps upon one string and abounds in pious repetitions and redundancies, but this arises from the shallowness of the reader's own mind. He said, those who have studied this divine hymn and carefully noted each line in it are amazed at the variety and the profundity of thought. The more one studies it, the fresher it becomes. It contains no idle word. That's why I said as we began, this is a psalm for a lifetime. This is one to begin if you've never read through it, if you've only perhaps picked at it. If you've never read through it, this is one to start tonight and start reading through it and come back to it again and again and again. It's not just the psalmist saying, you got to be into the Word of God. He says that, truly. But it's so much more. It's the influence. It's the impact. It's the function of the Word of God and how it functions, again, as the building blocks of the language of faith, which we see grow throughout this psalm. We could spend the next year, every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning, attempting to plumb its meaning And at the end of the year, still not have truly sounded its depths. So it contains, again, 22 stanzas. We're going to follow these for our outline. So you only have 22 points to jot down tonight. First stanza, Aleph. Aleph talks about these first eight verses, the word of progress. Progress. Verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The word blessed there in the Hebrew, there are a couple of Hebrew words for blessed. Barak is one of them. This is not that word. This is the word asar. Asar describes a supreme state of happiness, of blessedness. But what's interesting about asar is the root word is literally to go straight on or to make progress. That the blessedness of the Word of God is in how it progresses you through the walk of faith. You want to be blessed with progress in your faith walk? Walk in the Word. Walk in, literally, the law. It says "Who walk in the law of the Lord. Walking in the law. Torah is the word. Whenever you see law throughout Psalm 119, in fact, in most of the Hebrew Scriptures, it's Torah. But it doesn't just speak of the first five books truly it speaks of of the whole of the hebrew scriptures that's the indication to walk in the law now i want you to understand something before we go any further that as much as it's a misconception to think that keeping the law can save you on the other side it's also wrong to think that keeping the law is a drudgery we have this tendency to go one or the other I, i gotta keep the law and therefore buy my way into heaven or on the other hand, no, 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 I'm saved by grace, therefore I don't need the law. And it's, it's a hassle, and it's a struggle, and it's hard, and it's boring. You know, 613 laws, people say, oh, it shalls and it shall nots. And Jesus came, and He kept the law perfectly. Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. And then He took the punishment for sin and failure and in light of the law, He took it all on Himself and He freed us. Now listen, He freed us to the sheer blessing of keeping the law. Jesus freed us from keeping the law so that we could enjoy keeping the law. So that we don't keep it to earn anything. We don't keep it to prove our righteousness. But now it's like, I don't have to worry about trying to keep it. I can just keep it because it's a wonderful thing. The law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19 tells us. And it's restoring and it's reviving and it's enlightening and and all that the psalmist says. And so I can have the joy of the law without the weight of the law. So, Rick, are you telling me that you should keep the law? Absolutely. Not because it saves. But because it's good. Because it's joyful. Not legalistically, but joyfully in the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And unfortunately, I think there are going to be a lot of pastors called least. Guys coming along... Saying, and you've heard me say it grace, 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 grace. Yes, grace is all that. Grace is wonderful. Grace is what we're about. Grace is what saves us. And yet, that doesn't mean that we sit here and say, so forget the law. Annul the Word of God. You're saved by grace, man. Go be happy, slappy, and live your life. Anyone who teaches that is going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus. You don't annul the commandments, you don't annul the law. Jesus fulfills the law in and of Himself, covers us with His blood and says, now come on, let's enjoy the fruit of the law and the good things there and the teaching and the Word of God that is healthy and good for your life and creates sanctification and holiness. Jesus says, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now that was New Testament teaching. Jesus saying that. Now as we go through Psalm 119, I point that out because we need to understand this is not a legalistic call to self-righteousness, but an invitation to walk in the Word of God. An invitation to keep the Word faithfully, joyfully, as we learn to speak and read with the language of faith. I, um, the last few nights we've been reading with Naomi. We read every night, and, and she has these little, these little paperback books that she got from school, about probably eight pages each. Now, I like reading with Naomi because I get to go back and read some of the classics, you know, The Cat in the Hat. And um, Stan the Hot Dog Man, that's a favorite. Good Night Moon, I mean, some really good stuff. And I look forward to that time. Come on, Cat in the Hat. No, not the, the Cat in the Hat Comes Back, that's a good one. Anything, Dr. Seuss, I love to read. Well, these little books that Naomi brought home from school that her teacher wants her to be reading right now, not so fun. And parents, you may remember these days, I sit down with her, we open the book, and it reads, Dot had a cat. Dot sat on a mat. Cat sat on a mat. (laughs) Dot and cat had a... I mean, it just drives me nuts. (laughs) And I just want to read the cat in the hat, you know, because it rhymes just like that, but it's a little more fun. Here's the thing. I sit there because Naomi is learning this. She's learning how to read, and she very slowly does these words, cat, sat, on, and I'm going, Hey! (laughs) And she'll go, Matt! And you know what she does at the end of almost every sentence? She giggles. She loves it. And it's not the story, it's that "Ah, I'm reading, I'm getting it, I'm speaking the language here of English and I can read words and and it's just a thrill for her. And you know, we come to the Word of God and it's kind of like that as our understanding begins to unfold, as we begin to see things, as it makes sense to us. Suddenly, this, this word, and I don't know about you, man, back in my younger days, I heard all the time from friends of mine the Bible is boring, the Bible is hard to understand, the Bible's not, you know, that's, that's for like theologians and pastors and teachers, and they, they do that, but not. I just don't get the Bible. It's hard to understand. <laughs> How blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. You know, the more you're in the Word, the more you get tickled. And the more you just find yourself thrilled by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Verse 2 tells us, how. you're wondering, how in the world, Rick, are we going to get through 186 verses when we just spent all that time on one? Verse 2. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Okay, the best definition of righteousness I've ever heard is this walk in his ways. That's righteousness. It's not cleaned up, looking smart, saying all the right things, doing all the right things. It's just walking in his ways. It's walking with the Lord. It's being with Jesus. Because in Jesus, the faith walk is not a series of do's and don'ts. It's just a series of do's. It's a get to, not a got to. You see, He did the got to so that I can get to. And I get to keep this. And I get to worship Him. And I get to study to show myself approved. And I get to walk in righteousness. I don't have to keep the law. I get to keep the law. And it blesses my life. Verse 4, He goes on, He says, You have ordained Your precepts, that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that My ways may be established to keep Your statutes. Then... I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. You know there's no shame when you're walking in the way of the Lord. No shame. You know when shame comes? Shame comes when I walk in contrast to His commandments. When I'm like the salmon heading upstream instead of with the flow of God's Word, when I'm trying to do it my way, shame comes because the Word, well, Romans 5.20 kind of tells us, the law came in so transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul says something amazing there. God gave the law so that we could see better what it was that we were doing wrong. So we could understand our sin. And by seeing the law and having our sin illuminated to us, man, we we don't just keep swimming upstream in our sin. We turn and go with the flow of the Word of God. Because we see what's right and we understand what's true. And it's a good place to be. Man, when I try to slunk by His perfect commands in my dark, tawdry little ways, it produces guilt. It brings about shame and a recognition that I'm out of step with my Creator and Lord. But man, when I walk according to His Word, I sense righteousness. I naturally have this incredible desire to thank and and praise and worship Him, which is what happens in verse 7. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Several of you, as we were praising tonight, made comments about His righteousness and His faithfulness and His patience with us. And someone even said, I praise you that your judgments are true or your judgments are perfect. And when you understand these, when you see the way that the Lord judges and His mercy and His grace, all you want to do is praise Him. By the way, we've talked a lot about worship and emotion lately. Kind of made it a point that emotional worship... Tends to be the most superficial. I'm not saying it has to be. I'm not saying you can't be emotional when you worship God. In fact, if you're not emotional, there's a problem. But if your worship is based on emotion, is driven by emotion, if you come into the barn and, and you know, we said, what was it, Sunday, and I think last week too, if you're not in the mood to worship, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's not for you, it's for Him. And it doesn't matter if you feel it or not. But, gang, it. it, it Uh, Worship that's emotional can be superficial, but if you want your worship to be meaningful, if you want it to be deep, if you want it to be real, if you want it to be constant, the Word is the key. The Word of God deepens my sense of worship. Those who study the Scriptures, who, who pour over each page, who feed on every word, which proceeds from the mouth of God, these Jesus calls the true worshipers, who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. My worship then has substance. You know? I love you, Lord. remember last week, I love you because because of what you've done, because of what I see, because of who you are, that kind of worship King, a, a word-fed, worshipful heart, it doesn't wear out when times get hard. A heart fed on the word doesn't stop worshiping. It doesn't burn out when emotions get weary. It doesn't get bored with the same old songs and hymns and choruses. Can't we get a new song in here for a change? Hey, a worshipful heart. How many times have you sung Amazing Grace in your life? Does it ever get old? I mean, it just doesn't. Not for me. You know when it got old for me? When I was about 12 years old and I didn't understand the Word of God. Oh, we're singing this again? This old song? I was 12. I'm 46 now. I've said it a few times since then. And it's it's a delight. Why? Because of the Word. And the more the Word is in you, the more the worship comes out of you. Verse 8, he says, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. And so the first stanza, that Aleph, is the word of progress. He's progressing us forward. We move forward as the Word leads us forward in life. Verse 9, and the second stanza now, The second stanza is bet, and you might jot this down. It's the word of purification. The word of purification. Oh, wait, one other thing I got to point out in verse 8. David said, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. I love that because it's almost as if he realizes the bravado with which he says, I'll keep your statutes. (laughs) I will keep your word. I'll keep your commandments, Lord. And quickly he adds, Oh, but don't forsake me. Why would he say that? Because David realizes if not for the Lord, he would not be able to keep the commandments. If not for the Spirit of the Lord, he could not keep these statutes. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. We can't keep the statutes without the Spirit. So with the Holy Spirit, we are strengthened now to keep the Word. John 14, 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, Jesus says, He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, second stanza, Bet, the word of purification, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. A couple of those verses are probably pretty familiar to you. If you've, if you've read the Bible or been, been in it for any amount of time. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. You know, I, I don't understand anymore when people undermine or denigrate the word of God. I don't get it. I don't understand why people would call it irrelevant or unnecessary or, again, only for scholars or preachers. Here's something to remember. You may have heard this. Sin will keep me from this book. But this book will keep me from sin. I've heard that many times before, but it is true as the day is long. Sin will keep me from this book. This book will keep me from sin. Whether we realize it or not, by the time your head hits the pillow at night, you have been exposed to massive amounts of sin. Living and walking in this world. I went down to the high school today, Oak Harbor High School, just to visit with Jim Crouch, go meet him in his classroom. I'm walking through the hallway, hallways and the bell man, that was a weird experience. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm in a high school hallway, it just takes me back immediately. I'm walking by the lockers and I'm thinking about those times I was late to class because I couldn't get it open, you know, and my heart starts to beat a little faster and I start to worry and think about the papers that are due and it's weird. So I'm walking down the hallway there and class lets out and the students start pouring into the hallway. And just from the office to Jim's classroom, the number of curse words I heard was astounding to me. And, you know, you can lie to yourself and say, yeah, I just I just tuned it out. No, you don't. No, you don't. You may ignore it. You may pretend that you're not hearing it, but the stuff gets in. The sin gets in. You turn on your computer. You open up your home page. You go to the local news. I've shared before. I'll tell you something. In many cases, and I, I, this is just me, but I, I like Fox News, but I don't like to scroll down the page because they have sections on it that are just have no business being on the page. They have a whole section called Fox on Sex. That I I guess I don't know if they're trying to uh, reach a certain audience, (laughs) but it makes me sick. And that's just going on the internet. You turn on your TV, commercials that hit. You might say, "Well, I've done away with the internet. I've done away with TV. I just get in my car and drive." Do you turn on the radio? Do you interact with other people? You are being affected by sin. It's gunk that gets on you. It gets in you. It's like a clogged sink. We have these U-joints underneath our sink, and I've had to clean those out a few times. Man, that's disgusting. I never realized what a disgusting person I am. You know, when I'm cleaning out my own sink and it's grossing me out, I mean, that's not good. And sin is like that. It gets into the spiritual heart valves and it begins to clog them and gunk up our lives. So what do we do? Well, Paul says in Ephesians 5.25 that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Because the more the Word gets in, the more the sin gets pushed out. The more the gunk gets cleaned out of our life. This, this thing right here, this book is an amazing cleansing agent against the sin in our lives. Your choice to be here tonight is a wonderful choice because you're getting sin washed off of you. And It's not that I saw you coming in and went, boy, Les needs it tonight. (laughs) Look at him. Did you see what John was wearing? I mean, he's got sin hanging off of him in every direction. No. It's the reality that the Word of God cleans the sin out of our lives. Paul said in Romans 12 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why, Paul? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the word of purification. As we progress in the language of faith, we are getting purified by the word of God. Verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. Can you do that? Can you tell of all the ordinances of the Lord with your mouth? Do you know the words so well that your lips proclaim what God is teaching you? Do you find yourself sharing? it? You, you hit, the, hit the job site or, or work on Thursday morning, and do you find yourself going, Oh, dude, i got to tell you about Bible study last night. And then recounting the things that the Lord, not Pastor Rick, the Spirit has shown you in His Word? Can you do that? Well, David says, yeah, my lips open up and I tell of your ordinances. He says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your your ways. The word meditate in the Hebrew literally is to chew on like a cow chews its cud. I'm going to meditate on the Word. I'm chewing on the Word and then I'm going to send it down into one of my, you know, my fourth stomach. And sometime later on in the day I'm going to erp it back up and chew some more. Well, see, how that's how a cow digests. And that's what the word meditate literally means. It means to chew on. I'll meditate on your precepts. Regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your Word. And this is key to purification, gang. Had a little girl in youth group several years ago. I was a youth pastor for a long time. And um, and this girl and, and this guy in the youth group, they're two of our, our star kids. And these are these are two of the premier kids. If you if you were gonna have a retreat man, put them in charge of activities. If you were gonna have some special devotional night, call them up, they'd organize it. I mean, they they love the Lord. The parents of this girl were on staff at the church where I worked. And her father had given her a solid gold with a a little inlay of diamonds purity ring when she turned 16. And she was to wear this ring, the agreement with her dad, some of you have heard of this before, that wear this ring until the day you get married. And then on that day, you give that ring to your husband as a show of your devotion to him by maintaining your purity. The tragedy is I found out when this girl and her boyfriend came to meet with me and counsel with me That they were sleeping together. And I had to know, what about, what do you do with the ring? And she said, I take it off. Don't take it off. If you want purity, the word of purity comes as you maintain the word, not just when it's on your fingers, not just when it's present but then it's in your heart and that was the problem with her purity ring it was on her finger but it didn't get into her heart the promise wasn't here it was here and so all she had to do was slip it off her hand set it down and the promise was set aside don't set aside the promises of God the word of purification of purity it astounds me how often we do that that we hold the word in our hands but we don't treasure it in our hearts and if we're not treasuring it in our hearts, purity will get set aside. The word of purification. Third stanza, Gamel. Gamel, the letter Gamel, third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And now we get into, in this octave, these eight verses, we get into the word of perception. Perception or understanding, or better yet, revelation. Verse 17 Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Uh, my, my assumption is that's why you're here tonight. My assumption is with each of you, you open up the word because you're discovering things. And you're seeing things. And it's astounding as we realize what's here, as we say, Lord, would you teach us? Lord, open our eyes. We're saying tonight, open the eyes of my heart which is a prayer for revelation and understanding and perception, I want to perceive everything God has in His Word for me. I want to know what He's got here and and what He's saying to us, the wonderful things in His law. Now listen, verse 18 calls our attention to the single most important principle for Bible study. If you miss this principle, no matter how many commentaries you surround yourself with or how many good teachers, you're going to miss the depth and the wonders of the law of God. What is the principle? It's prayer. Without the Spirit of God, there is no revelation. Which is why people do come to the Bible and they read it and they don't get it. It's not speaking to me. I I don't understand why you spend your entire Wednesday night in Bible study. What's the matter with you? prayer a w tozer i've told you before a w tozer probably one of the well one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century tozer had no formal education i think he got as far about as far as the fourth grade and then he had to stay home and work the farm and help out with his family tozer studied by getting down on his knees and opening the book before him and praying and asking the spirit to teach him That's where I got it, by the way. If you hear me before teachings on Wednesdays and Sundays, I always say, Holy Spirit, be our guide spirit. Would you lead us? Would you teach us this morning? It's because I don't have what it takes. I do that in my office. When I open up the Word, the first thing I say is, Lord, I need you to show me what's here. Spirit of the living God, show me what your Word has to say. We want to know what you want us to know. If we begin Bible study with prayer, you have the most powerful tool for understanding the Word of God. You could have Spurgeon's entire commentary set. It is not as powerful as just opening up and praying. I I think of the Apostle John exiled on the island of Patmos, and there were no libraries, and there were no seminaries, and there were no local rabbis, pastors, or theologians to consult. It was just John. But you remember what it says in Revelation chapter 1? He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And what happened when John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? The revelation of Jesus Christ. The single greatest revelation given to man. And John got it without any help from anybody else. He just was there, in the Spirit, in prayer. And God said, that's the person I will reveal things to. That's the person who I will open wide his perception. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Verse 19. I like this line. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. I mean, this is a guy who loves the word. You rebuke the arrogant and the cursed who wander from your commandments. And there's a great description of anyone who sets the Bible aside and goes in another direction. Not my words, but his words, arrogant and cursed. But why arrogant? Because you think you don't need it. It is the height of human pride and arrogance to say, I don't need what God has to tell me. I don't need his Bible. I don't need that, that word. I don't need those Bible studies. I don't need to spend... I can do it. I don't know if there's anything more arrogant than saying that. He goes on and says, Take away my reproach. Or take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Now the psalmist is starting to get into something you're going to see more of. He's starting to help us realize he's being treated with contempt. There are people who are reproaching him, partially because he loves the Word of God so much. And God says, Take or he says to the Lord, Take that away. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. King, hey, this is the cry of the sojourner. This is the person who doesn't belong here. He doesn't belong in this world. The old hymn, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I don't belong here. I feel like an outsider in this world. And the cry of the sojourner is, and the ache of longing for the ways of God, this is the sojourner's response. Listen. The sojourner's response to slander and gossip. What do you mean? Someone who is walking in the way of the Word. Someone who is following after Jesus, who doesn't consider this world home, but considers a better place to be home. For that person, the response to gossip and slander is, Go to the Word. Go to the Word of God. Look look again what it says. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Man, a thousand people could be coming after me. Ten thousand could be against me. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to slander back. I'm not going to gossip back. I'm just going to go to the Word. And I'm going to get God's counsel there. Go to the Word. Hey, if you're not of this world, why would you take counsel from this world? And yet we Christians do it all the time. We go for worldly counsel, and we've got the Word of God, which is the greatest counsel available to us. And we have the Spirit of God to speak His Word into our hearts. The greatest counsel we could possibly have. And we go looking on the bookshelves. I still don't understand that one. David says, your testimonies are my counselors. David had a tough life. And if you read the life of David and studied it as we have, you know he went from, from nobody, a little shepherd boy out on the hills, to a sudden hero. That's hard. Suddenly he is he is the hero uh, he's the you know Israeli idol (laughs) everybody in Israel knows the name of David who killed Goliath wow suddenly he's he's shot up into the spotlight and that's hard to take and from there he's given a death sentence by Saul and Saul begins to chase him down in his whole life. And he's surrounded by fierce enemies when he becomes a king. And then he's betrayed by his own counselors, even his own son. David had a tough life. And so he had to cling to God's word for counsel. And he recognizes and tells us it is the best place to go when life is hard. Revelation of God's word. Fourth stanza. The fourth stanza, Dilet, speaks of the word of power. Power. Verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have told of my ways and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts so I will meditate on your wonders. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed Your ordinances before me. I cling to Your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of Your commandments, for You will enlarge my heart. The Word of Power. Suddenly, the psalmist goes from musing about the blessing and the cleansing and the revelation of the Word, suddenly he goes now to a place of severe anguish. And we realize in the writing, at least of this section of the psalm, that he's in pain. That he's in distress. As his soul flees to the dust, verse 25 tells us, his spirit clings to the Word, verse 31 says. It's been said that a Bible that's falling apart belongs to someone who isn't. And that's well said. And yet... It's amazing how often do people turn to the Bible but only in times of distress. Only when life gets hard. How many words of Scripture hang about in hospital rooms? How often is the Scripture read, read there? Often. How, how many times at funerals is the Bible opened up perhaps for the first time in that dying per, or dead person's life? Hopefully they're dead if they're having a funeral and they're not dying. That would be, They need to be back in the hospital. How many times... Have you been to a funeral and you hear the 23rd Psalm being read, and yet tragically the person at the funeral was not a believer? It seems to me that that's a little late. It's comforting. The words bring peace. Revelation 21 that he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. I mean, these are read at funerals of people who don't even believe. And you have to ask the question why do people wait? begging desperately for strength in times of despair, why not build up strength in the Word of God now, which is what you're doing tonight? Why not be in the Word of God constantly so when the days of despair come, when the distress hits, you're already rock solid. You're the man who built his house on the rock, who heard all these words of Jesus and obeyed them and was ready when the storm came. I think a big part of the reason that people don't go to the Word except in these times of despair, is we have this amazing way of rationalizing and ultimately deceiving ourselves. When we talk ourselves out of the need for the Word of God or out of the need for fellowship with believers or out of the need for a church experience of any kind, it's self-deception. Go back to verse 29. Look at this. He writes, Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me Your law, the false way. The Hebrew word is shaker, and the translation is interesting. It's personal. It's not somebody else's false way he's talking about, it's his own false way. He's saying, remove literally the lying to myself. Stop me from lying to myself. And David gets it, man, we delude and deceive ourselves when we think we've got all the power we need to deal with life. We don't. The Word of God is the power. The Word brings us the strength that we need. But even among Christians, man, there is a subtle deceit. There's a false way in churches. What are you talking about? Paul said there would be. Paul warned Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, realize this, Tim, difficult times will come. When? In the last days. It's going to get hard. And he goes on to say, he, he describes all manner of, of horrible things that it will happen. Men will be lovers of self and boastful and rude and arrogant. And he goes down this list and then he comes to church people and he says in 2 Timothy three five, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. And if that doesn't describe dead denominationalism today, I'm not sure what does. Holding to a form, a, a, an image of godliness we go to church we have potlucks we have that gross little red punch that usually is diluted instead of being nice and sweet like it should be we do all these we, you know we have our ministries and we have our involvements we have these things that we do and yet walk into any number of those churches and, and start to talk about the power of God Did I tell you I, I, don't, I don't ever know if I've told you things before or not. So forgive me if I've shared this before, but I sat in a church meeting with elders and, and staff and I brought up, hey, perhaps because we were talking about uh, different ways of ministries and needs in ministries, and I said, maybe we should just ought, to, we ought to just look at what people's spiritual gifts are. And I was shut down. In fact, that was the, first, that was the beginning of the end for my work at that church. Because they said, no, 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 we don't want to talk about spiritual gifts. That's Holy Spirit stuff oh I'm sorry was this a church I was shocked don't talk about the power of God we'll hold to a form of godliness that's what we want a form of godliness but we're going to deny the power and gang people deny the power of the word all the time that's why David says in verse 26 I've told of my ways teach me your statutes Here's my way. My way is the way of sin and, and messing it up and self deceit and confusion. Teach me your ways. Because in the ways of the Lord, that's where we find our power. The word of his power. Fifth stanza. Heh. Heh. A little, little letter there. Heh. And it is, gang, the word of provision. The word of provision. What Salita prayed for or praised God for? His provision. Watch this, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe Your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of Your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to Your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in Your ways. Now, listen. He asks this question, what is it that you depend on in your life? What do you depend on? In America, our culture is dependent on stuff. I think it's interesting here, he says in verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And you notice the word dishonest is italicized. It's not there in the original language. It just says, and not to gain. But the reason it's there is the word gain in the Hebrew is Well, it's a military word for plunder after a battle that's been fought. It's also a weaver's word for cutting a woven cloth off of a loom. But it's not just cutting cloth that you've been weaving. The idea is cutting off cloth that someone else has been weaving. In other words, it's a ripoff. And what he's saying here... (laughs) And what he's saying is, "...incline my heart to your testimonies and not to ripping off other people." And not to coveting. And not to plundering people around me. Man, we have such a materialistic culture. We are so into our stuff. Christmas is over. Praise God. Christmas is over. I love the part of Christmas where we're praising God. Don't get me wrong. And where we're worshiping and and remembering and looking at the coming of Jesus into the world. But, But the presents and the purchases... And the requirements, it just, it's, you know what, it's disgusting. And it's our culture. We were just talking about that a couple of Sundays ago. How it's just too much. And he says, you know, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to this covetous gain. Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity. Revive me. Bring me alive in your word. But how much do we pursue things that really aren't for us? I mean, what is it that we go after materially that perhaps the Lord doesn't even want us to have? Which is why it's always better to start with the kingdom and seek that first, yeah. and then all these things will be added as well. Yeah. Remember, let's let's just do His business, and He'll take it. He'll give us what we need, and what we need is going to be far better than what we thought we needed in the first place. Now, David says, "Incline my heart to what you you say, not to what I." think I need. And dependency on the Word of God for my provision creates dependency on the Spirit of God, and at the same time pushes dependency away on the material world. Verse 38, he says, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread. For your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Now, now, assuming this is David, you might say, good for David. (laughs) I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, right? Of course he longed for God's precepts. Of course he loved the law of God. Of course he was into the Word of God. For me personally, I long for a vacation home in Hawaii. I long for an afternoon of hoagies and football. That's what I long for. You know, I'm a I'm a man after the NFL's own heart. (laughs) Or someone might say, I long for a good marriage, Or, or I long for a peaceful life. I long for true happiness. Listen, this isn't what David longs for. Psalm 119 is not declaring the longing of David's heart. What do you mean? You know what the Word of God says you long for and I long for? The Word of God. What David is declaring here is something that is true of all of us, that we all long for His precepts. We may not realize it, we may ignore it, we may miss that truth, but the reality is our hearts long. We crave His Word. Well, then why aren't more people in Bible study? Because we ignore the craving. And if you ignore it long enough, it goes away. And so, people miss it. It's the longing of the heart that we can't see because of all the stuff in our hearts that clog it up and all the things that we're chasing that we think will bring satisfaction and we think will bring security. And it's taken me so long in my life to get to the point where I realize all the stuff that I chased down that I thought was necessary for a good family life is unnecessary. You know what's necessary? Love, fellowship, the Word of God, prayer, worship, seeking the kingdom. This brings satisfaction, unlike anything else. This brings security. You know, what can man do to me? I'm a son of the kingdom. You know, I'm in in Jesus' administration. What can someone do? Nothing. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 43, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't hear my word. You can't hear my word. And then he says, He who is of God hears the words of God. The reason we don't hear the word of God is we're we're too stuffed up. We have too much stuff. That's why Jesus cried out, He who has an ear, let him hear, because the longing of every heart at its core is to hear the voice of the Lord. That, That really is what we want. I'm convinced of it. Sixth stanza. Vav. The word of proclamation. This is a confidence section. Oh, the the psalmist now, David, he's starting to stand up a little bit. He's talked about some affliction, but man, he's turning it back around. He says, May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word, so I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for for your ordinances, so I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments which I love. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Check this out. Verses forty-two through forty-six, or the last seven verses of this eight verse stanza, hinge on verse forty-one. Verse 41 is the key to the other verses coming to pass. Look at verse 41 again. May your loving kindnesses or your grace may your grace come to me, O Lord your salvation according to your word. What's that? It's the gospel. Verse 41 is the gospel. May your grace come to me your salvation according to your word. Well, who's the word? Jesus is the word. May your grace come to me, He says. May I be saved. It's grace unto salvation by the Word of God. And John 20, verse 31 tells us, These things have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And so the rest of the verses in this stanza hinge on that verse. Hinge on the salvation that comes by grace. Because once you've received Jesus as Lord, and you've received the grace of His salvation, your life becomes the word of proclamation. And that's what this stanza is, these eight verses. It's the word of proclamation. I mean, notice this. He says, May your grace come to me, your salvation according to your words. So, so, once I have this salvation, so, I'll have an answer for Him who reproaches me. Because I'm saved. I can answer anybody, anything, because I walk in the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 44, So... I will keep your law continually, note this, forever and ever. Because the only way you can keep His law forever and ever is you've got to be saved. If you're not saved, you're not keeping the law forever and ever. You might try to keep it for a few years, but if you're not saved, if you're not born again by the Spirit of the living God, if you're just going through the motions, you're not going to keep the law forever and ever. I can tell you that. He says further down in verse 45, I will walk at liberty, freedom, I've got freedom. Why? Because of your precepts. The law is not something that binds us. Religion binds us. But the law frees us. It makes us free. It brings liberty. He says also in verse 46, I will speak of your testimonies before kings and not be ashamed. Jesus draws off of that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 18, he says, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. I'll be brought before kings? I'll be brought before authorities? I don't know what I'll say. Hey, once you're saved, you're going to know what to say. And Paul fulfilled this in a wonderful way. This verse, I'll speak of your testimonies before kings. Paul was brought up before Agrippa in that coastal amphitheater called Caesarea. First stop on the tour in Israel, if you go with us next March, a year from this March, first stop we'll make is at Caesarea by the sea. And we will sit in this amphitheater and read the words of Paul that he spoke in that amphitheater when he said... He stretched out his hand, Acts 26, verse 1, and proceeded to make his defense. He said, In regard to all things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. You know what Paul's defense is? The story of his salvation. The fact that he was a persecutor of the church, but he got saved. He proclaims the gospel. And this is the word of proclamation. Man, when I recognize His grace that saves me according to His word, I am a proclaimer of His word. And even kings and authorities are not intimidating to someone whose life proclaims the salvation of God. The word of proclamation. What does that mean in verse 48? And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments. I count five things and there may be more, five things in Scripture that, that, this, uh, that have take on this connotation, this idea of lifting up hands, now, prayer. Now, I'll lift up my hands in prayer. Um, to bless, I'll lift up my hands in a blessing. That's the second thing. Third thing would be praise. I lift up my hands in worship and praise. Now the fourth reason, giving a vow, making a vow. you know I, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth so help me God. Lifting up my hands in a vow. But there's a fifth time, mentioned only once, where the lifting up of hands has to do with something else that I find very interesting. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 44, Pharaoh is talking to Joseph, who he has just raised up as his third in command, or second in command. And he says, says Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Yet, Without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. What does that mean? What he's saying is, no one will do anything without your permission, Joseph. No one will be about any work. Unless you say so, you have absolute authority. David says, I'll lift my hands Verse 48, to your commandments, what he's saying? What's he saying? He's saying, I'm not just going to read them, I'm going to do them. I'm going to lift my, I'm rolling up my sleeves, he might say. To your commandments. I read the Word of God and I say, alright, let's get busy. Time to work. What do I do? I'm a doer of the Word, as James wrote. Not merely a hearer who deludes myself. You know, it's not enough to sit in church and listen to, to the pastor ramble on and on and on. This is not where it happens. This is just where the words are poured out. It's what you do with them that makes the difference. In lifting up our hands to the commandments. And whatever you do Colossians 3:16 or 17 in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Progress The word of purification, the word of perception, power, provision, and the word of proclamation, which brings us to the seventh of 22 stanzas. How you doing? (laughs) Don't worry, we're not going to do them all. Zayin. Zayin, the seventh stanza, and this now begins to take us into the word of perseverance. Perseverance. Remember the word to your servant, in which you have made me hope or wait, or expect, or tarry. The words, of your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. No matter how bad it gets, Father, I have your word and it keeps me alive. Your word is life. His word is living and active, but his word breeds life. Revival into our hearts, into our spirits. Verse 51, The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs, I love this, in the house of my pilgrimage. Oh Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine that I observe your precepts. Oh, this whole stanza, it, it, it just smells of perseverance. It, it's full of, of perseverance. That God's Word has the power to bring hope and comfort and strength that we might persevere when it's hard then we might stand strong in the face of struggles and sorrows that would try to get us down. In the book of Revelation, we're told, Revelation 14, 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. How do you persevere? You keep the Word. You speak the language of faith. Now I debated with myself whether or not to share this, because anytime I share something like this, people think there's something wrong. There's not. Or people think, you know, we need to pity the pastor. I'm not asking for that. In fact, this is a little foolish of me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sometimes I offend people. <laughs> no, I do. I know it's hard to believe. I spent 15 years in full-time youth ministry and didn't really offend very many people. Oh, there are some parents who thought I had pulled some dumb stunts, and I did. There was that time we were throwing rocks off the roof of the church trying to blow up uh pot bottles, but that's another story. <laughs> but I didn't I never had in trouble, you know, with, with people. I never lost relationships. I never had people storm out of my church. They stormed out of the senior pastor's church. I was just on staff. You talk to that guy, you know. I've been seven years a senior pastor now, and the other day, and it happens to me. As I'm sure it happens to you, some inserted thought patterns began to get in. Troy so and I were driving down a street and I, I recognized the house of someone who no longer attends the bridge and will not speak to me if they see me in public. What'd you do, Rick? Well, I was, I was teaching and they got upset. And they're mad at me. I mean, literally, if I walk into a restaurant they get up and leave, it's like, wow, okay. And you know, I know pastors who are bitter and who are closed off and shut down. And as I'm driving along, I, it, you know, it kind of hurts. And I was thinking, Lord, I, I, get, I understand why pastors do that. I understand why guys burn out and get out of ministry altogether. I, I don't want to be that guy. And I was, it's remarkable. I was praying this just this last week. No pity for Rick, I'm fine. But it it was just one of those days, and I'm just thinking about people I've offended, and people who are mad at me, and even when you try to make it right, they don't want you to make it right. It's like, what do I do, Lord? How do I not end up bitter about this? And Monday afternoon, I started reading Psalm 119. And Tuesday morning, I'm pouring over it, and I'm thinking through this, and I'm reading... I remember your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. And with every verse, I found it lifting. I found all of that worry over offending. Hey, It's going to happen. If I'm going to teach the Word, people are going to get offended. O Lord, I remember your name in the night. and Keep your law. This has become mine. This is something... Listen, nobody can take the Word away from you. Nobody can take God's Word from you. It is comfort and strength and gives you the ability to persevere when life gets tough. Paul said in Romans 15.4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. I found myself grinning all through the day yesterday. And I realized, you know, these. and again, I said inserted thought patterns. Les talks about this from time to time. It's when the enemy just sticks something in there to bug you or to get under your skin or to make you feel like you're not good enough or like you've got problems and and distracts you from just walking in the Word walking with the Lord just trusting Him and if I still have His Word I have the greatest source of comfort and hope and perseverance a man can have it's right here and God is good and I find myself revived filled with hope And I'll tell you this, and I say all that silliness to say this one thing, the only reason, please hear me, the only reason I'm able to come into this barn and offer any hope or any comfort or any encouragement is because I myself have been encouraged by the Word. That's it. John and Lisa walked into our house last night and we had pizza. Hey, come on up and have some pizza. So we're having pizza together. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago the, the game Plants vs. Zombies that I recently <laughs> discovered. And I said, you guys got to see this. And I opened up my laptop and I'm, and I'm showing them how you plant the plants and the zombies come and the plants shoot the zombies and knock it. It's a cartoon game but it's it's addictive. And John's going, I don't even believe what I'm looking at here. And Lisa, <laughs> Lisa goes, Rick, now I know that you are an anointed teacher. (laughs) What are you saying? Now I know that it's only because of God that you have anything good to say. And I laugh. And That's wonderful. That is wonderful. Come spend five minutes with me in my house and you'll see what an idiot I am. back to the word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, Second Corinthians 1.3, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with what? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's the only comfort I have to offer you is the comfort he's shown me the encouragement He's given me, the word He's given me, that's the only word I have for you. Anything else, anything from me, it's not worth the time of day. Eighth stanza, Heth. Heth, the word now of my portion. My portion, not my provision, this is different. The word of my portion, verse 57. Oh, we got to hurry. Verse 57. The Lord is my portion. Man, underline that. Highlight it. Circle it. Star it. Do whatever you have to do to draw that out and keep that before you. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. In other words, the Word is wonderful, but it is not my portion. The Lord is my portion. Why is the Word wonderful? Because it brings me to the Lord. It's my tutor. It's my schoolmaster. It leads me to Jesus Christ. He is my portion. He's what I need. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, Jeremiah says, The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is my portion. Verse 58 I sought your favor with all my heart. Oh, be gracious to me according to your word. Catch that. David says, I sought your favor. I did everything I could do to get your favor, and I realized the only way to your favor is if you are gracious to me like you said you'd be. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you. Not to get a drink of water. You know? Not to run to the bathroom at midnight, which is more of an issue the older you get, I'm discovering. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I can't believe Pastor Rick said that. Hey, I told you I'm an idiot. (laughs) I am a companion, verse 63, of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. And the earth is full of your loving kindness. O Lord, teach me your statutes. The idea here is that in spite of evil and sin, the earth is still full of the grace of God. He's still here. His spirit is still at work. His grace is still available. And if our portion is the Lord, what can anyone do? And my portion is Jesus. Who can take that away? Paul says in Romans 8, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ninth stanza, Teth. The ninth stanza here, Teth, is the word of prudence. The word of prudence verse 65 you have dealt well with your servant O Lord according to your word teach me good discernment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments we often ask the question what is the will of the Lord that's Christian speak for I don't know what I'm doing what's the will of the Lord in this circumstance what's the will of the Lord we're asking God what is the right decision here I want to know your will because I I, I could go one of two ways and I'm not sure which way to go. What's your will? And the psalmist says, the Word is our filter for that. The Word teaches us prudence, teaches us discernment. The word discernment here, I love it. It's ta'am in the Hebrew and it literally means taste. Taste, as in discerning different flavors. You've got the salty portion of the taste buds, and you've got the sweet portion of the taste buds, and you've got the sour portion of the taste buds. Your tongue is designed so that you can discern different flavors. And that's what he's asking for. I want to be able to discern, Lord, the right way to go. To have prudence in decisions that I make. There are all kinds of flavors in our life, decisions, good and bad. And that's why I love a Whitman sampler because unlike C's or some of these other candy companies Whitman Sampler you open it up and inside the box there's a candy key <laughs> okay those are the nuts and chews I'm going to stay away from those I don't want those but oh there's the caramel like that one. Oh, there's the chocolate and it tells you exactly what everything is so if you're going to get me anything <laughs> no I'm, I'm kidding but, but, but the word is kind of like a Whitman Sampler in that in that, we have discernment by it. It's got this little key. and shows us what we're about to bite, because sometimes our choices are just nuts. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 30, and this is another verse Les has spoken many times. I love this verse. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, He, your teacher, will no longer hide Himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. You know what the word is for word there? Dabar. So, Dabar. It's the word for the book of Deuteronomy. The word of God. You will hear the word of God. And the Word of God will give you discernment and will give you prudence and help you determine the right way to go, the different tastes before us in life. Verse 67, before I was, oh watch this, we're still in prudence, we're still in discernment, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. There is a direct correlation between learning to keep God's word and affliction. A correlation between the two. That God uses affliction to teach us His word. That God uses affliction to show us how to walk in His word. Look back again, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. What was the difference? Affliction. Before affliction, I wandered on my own. Affliction hit, and now I keep your word. Affliction, gang, is a catalyst for the application of God's word in our life. I have run into, met, talked to more people who have gone through real tough stuff in their lives who love the word of God. In fact, nine times out of ten, if someone tells me I love God's word, I know there's been some affliction. I know there's been some pain there. I know there's been some hurt. Something has happened. They've gone through something through which they realized without the word of God they had no hope. Affliction is a catalyst. David Grove is a young man in Africa. Some of you know David. He went to the bridge for a long time and now he's in Africa. How did he get to Africa? He bought a one-way ticket to go to Africa with Harvest Vision Ministries. You can look up HarvestVisionMinistries.org and you can actually follow what he's doing there. See, he's got the blogging and he emails and stuff. And uh, in our, our recent elders meeting, Steve Berenson was talking about David, and we were praying for David. And Steve was recently instant messaging with David, which is amazing to me. He's in Africa, Steve's here, and they're talking. You know, and. He told him, Steve said to David, he said, listen, I'm going to pray against hardships and challenges to your team's ministry. And David messaged back, please don't do that. Okay, How old is David? He's 22 22 years old. Steve, one of our elders, says, I'm going to pray against hardship for you. Don't do that, David says. He says, because hardship produces faith and when I'm weak, he is strong. Don't pray against hardship. Wow. When I was 22, I was praying, God, I want the easy life. I don't want hardship. I want it to be a smooth sailing. And here this 22-year-old young man gets it. Pray not against hardship. Pray for faith. Pray that I trust the Lord. Pray that when I am weak, He is strong. And I stop and point this out, Dan, because if you're currently in a place of affliction or hardship, the best prayer you can pray is teach me in this, Lord. Teach me to love your word through this. May this struggle be to your glory. Prudence is learned in the word and the experience of affliction. Verse 73. Yod. Quickly, verse seventy-three. My the word of patience. The word of patience. <laughs> you gotta be patient with me tonight. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad. Because I wait for your word. Because I wait, the word of patience. You know, it's interesting. This stanza is under the heading Yod. Note that, it's important. Matthew 5:18 again Jesus said truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter yod or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's interesting to me because the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is yod. And David puts it over this stanza which is a, an entire octave about patience about waiting what are you saying, Rick? I, I'm saying, why did God give us this? If God had given us a five-point plan of salvation, you would be driving home right now. Actually, you would have been driving home about an hour ago. We'd be done. We wouldn't have to take all this time that it takes to work our way verse by verse through the Bible. Why this, this, this long book? Why not a short but sweet statement of belief? One page. I mean, how many pages are your Bible? Mine mine runs 1,268. Granted, it's not as long as Obamacare, but it's still long. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Why this long word? No, seriously. God could have given us a one-pager. Here's what I expect. Here's what you need. And let's be done with it. But He gives us the entire book. Why? We've been at the study of God's Word for seven years and we just crossed the halfway point. It's a long book. And that's the idea. That's the idea. That we walk it out with Him. You see, God is not interested in a quick religious answer. He wants a relationship. And in walking through the Bible as we've been doing, you know what happens? you get to know God. And He's getting closer to you. And you're growing in faith and you're speaking that language and it, it takes time. It takes time. There are no shortcuts to a relationship with God. Why does He give us this whole entire Bible? Because He says, you know what, by the time they've gotten through that whole thing, they're going to know me pretty well. And they're going to want to start over and do it again. Yod. Patience. The Word of of patience. We live in a world that where everything moves at lightning speed. Gone are the days where Paul preached all night long until Eutychus fell out the window. Remember that story? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I apply it. I just we don't have well, we have a window up there. We need to put a seat up there. The kid sitting in the window listening to Paul preaching, just going, "Oh my goodness, dude, it's great. Gospel and grace, it's wonderful." But he's just going on, and out he goes. Eutychus falls to the ground and dies. Paul runs down there, throws himself on top of Eutychus, prays for him, and he's revived to life. And you know what they did? They didn't have a party. They didn't go out to Denny's. They went back upstairs and Paul preached the rest of the night. (laughs) Patience. Patience. (laughs) It's this, this lightning speed move of the world today where the Word of God demands a steady, patient pace. As David says in verse 73, His hands fashioned us. What does that mean? It means He knows how we work. He knows He could throw out something that we move through quickly and we would not take the time to know Him. And so He gives us something that requires us to take the time to get to know Him. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that Your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness... Wait a minute. You have afflicted me. This is not God allows hardships. It's God brings them. This blew my theology out of the water several years ago. You afflicted me, Lord. I know You did it in faithfulness. Oh, may Your loving kindness comfort me according to your, to your servant. May Your compassion come to me that I may live, for Your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on Your precepts. May those who fear You turn to me. Even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. And in this section, oh, the stanza is just full of David. It's just full of David. He makes five requests here. He requests clarity in verse 73. Give me clarity, Lord. And in verse 76, he asks for comfort. Clarity and comfort. In verse 77, he says, Oh, Lord, give me compassion in verse 74 and 79, he asked for something interesting. After asking for clarity, comfort, and compassion, now he asked for companionship. Note that. Verse 74 again, May those who fear you see me and be glad. These are the people I want to hang out with. People who fear God. Those are the people I want to spend time with to be my companions. Down in verse 79, he says, May those who fear you turn to me. And that is exactly what happened to David. First Samuel 22, verse 2 said, Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, gathered to David, and he became captain over them. A bunch of ragamuffins. And David became their captain. Why? Because he feared the Lord, and they feared the Lord, and they gathered together a group of about 400 men with their wives and children who needed the Lord who recognized they had need. They were in debt, they were discontent, they were distressed, and they said, we need God. And they gathered together to David. Clarity, comfort, compassion, companionship, and finally in verse 80, David says, may my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. Blameless, the word means complete. May my heart be complete. May I have a whole heart. But here's the thing. All of what David asked for there takes time. It takes time. The word of patience. It takes time to cultivate. One last stanza and we're done tonight. In this last octave we'll look at the 11th one, the 11th octave calf. It is the word of persecution. Watch this. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, When will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. David is at a low point in the psalm. The lowest point. This is the midnight of the psalm. And in this place he says, I'm like a wineskin in the smoke. What? What is a wineskin in the smoke? Empty wineskins. When, when In ancient times, David's day, when they were done with a wineskin, they would hang it up in the top of the tent. And there it would hang until they could get more wine and then they could use it again. They'd hang it up in the top of the tent. Well, the fire in the tent that was used for cooking or for heat, that smoke and that soot would rise up to the top of the tent. And if the wineskin was left there for too long, it would begin to get blackened with soot and it would shrivel up and it would get crisp and crunchy and useless. And David says, I'm like a wineskin in the smoke. We would say, his face looks like an old glove. (laughs) Or, Or we might say, she's got the tracks of her tears. She's got the careworn expression of someone who's lived a hard life. Spurgeon writes, his character had been smoked with slander. His mind parched with persecution. He was half afraid that he'd become useless and incapable through so much mental suffering and that men men would look upon him as an old worn out skin bottle which could hold nothing and answer no purpose. And this is the place that David is at. And he's he's talking about the Word and he's clinging to the Word, but man, his heart is just bursting open and he's saying, I'm like this, the wineskin and the smoke. He says in verse 84, How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me, he cries. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Amazing. In the depth of his despair, David cries out, Revive me, Lord! Not not so I can go about the business of a self-indulgent life. No, he says, revive me so that I might keep the testimony of your mouth. What does that mean? Father, rescue me so I can keep speaking Your Word. So that I can keep telling people of You. So that Your Word would be on my lips. Man, that is the stuff of a deep, experienced faith. A man who's been through hardship, but who has a solid command of the language of faith. And I said before, the further into Psalm 119 we go, the more we see this depth the writing of an old soul who has walked a long time in the word of god now we're going to stop there for tonight we're going to pick it up again on sunday but in conclusion i got to tell you one last thing here the bible the bible describes four things on earth which the lord has kept records of and will keep records of in heaven Four things on earth that God keeps or has kept records of in heaven. Four things. The first one is the spirits of the saved. Human spirits. God keeps record of. It's not just those who are saved who are there. It's their spirits. God keeps a running count. Revelation 3.5 He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. The book of life. It's that record of the spirits of the saved. That's the first thing we know on earth. God keeps a record of in heaven. Second thing, the shared testimonies of the saved. And I love this one. Do you realize there are testimonies you give about God? There are things you say, statements of faith, and God says, I like that. I'm writing that down. Well, that's good. What was that one about? Sin keeps you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. Oh, I like that, says the Lord, and He jots it down. How do you get that? Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. He jots down your statements of faith. Record of the spirits of those who are saved. He keeps records of the shared testimonies of those who are saved. Third thing, he keeps record of the shed tears of those who are saved. We read this in Psalm 56, verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Man, talk about the tracks of our tears. God tracks our tears. In Revelation 21, where He says He will wipe every tear from their eye, how will He do that? He's kept track of them. He knows every tear that you've ever cried, and all of it gets wiped away. And all remembrance of pain and heartache and hurt and affliction and persecution gone. He will wipe them away because he's kept track. Lastly, I tell you all this to say this. Of these things on earth that the Lord has kept record of in heaven, the fourth one is amazing to me it's the scriptures. The scriptures. Look at verse 89, and we'll end. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. Forever, Your Word is settled in heaven. The word there, the Hebrew word for settled is not sab, and it means forever, Lord, Your Word stands firm. Your Word, Lord, is fixed in heaven. How can the psalmist say in 138 verse 2, how can he say, you have magnified your Word above all your name? Because His Word is fixed in heaven forever. What does that mean? It means that the Word of God, living and active, (laughs) will be heard throughout eternity. You might say, Rick, it's been an eternity tonight. I know. (laughs) But this Word... That we're reading right now, we will hear again and not just in this barn. If you love the Word of God, if you love Bible study, guess what? It is fixed in heaven forever. We will sit at the feet of Jesus, like Mary did when Martha was busy, you know? We will sit at the feet of Jesus and just. Can you imagine Jesus reciting Psalm 119 to us? Can you imagine his commentary? His explanation. Oh, oh, this is good. Let me just give me just one more minute and I'll share this with you. You know, we'll be going more, Lord. More. Don't stop. Your word is fixed forever in heaven. Praise God. You've gotten a good head start tonight. Let's pray. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that your word would get in us and stick, and that we would be lovers of your word and doers of your word. May we be a people who just hunger and thirst after righteousness and loving Your Word. And Father, we thank You for bringing it to us. We look forward to the next time we gather to hear more, and we especially look forward to that day, Jesus, when we will hear You speak these words to us. Until then, Spirit, keep breathing the Word of God into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.